Good morning. Let's take out your copy of the scriptures. Turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. Last Sunday, you'll remember we finished our journey through the books of Samuel. And next Sunday, Lord willing, I plan to start back up in the Gospel of Luke. We left off last summer at the end of chapter 9, and so we'll pick it up back at the beginning of chapter 10. But this Sunday, today, this morning, I want to take a week to speak to you on the subject of elders from 1 Peter chapter 5. Just to get some terminology straight, uh, when I say elders, when this passage refers to elders, uh, we are referring to the men who have been appointed uh, to spiritually lead the church. Uh, I've made this case before, and so I won't go into all the details again. Happy to talk afterwards if you'd like clarification. But when I say elders, uh, I am referring to the same office as pastors. So elders are pastors and pastors are elders. There's no biblical distinction between the two and both refer to the men that are appointed to lead the church. And so our text today is going to be about elders, about pastors. As a matter of fact, our passage even begins with the phrase, so I exhort the elders among you. Which means that some of you may be tempted to tune out at this point. Sermon about elders, I'm not an elder, and I don't want to be an elder anytime soon. Or maybe you're a woman, and it's not just that you don't want to be an elder, it's that you can't be an elder, because you know what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Teach and exercise authority, that's what elders do, and so women cannot serve as elders, not because women are lower in the eyes of God or anything like that, But God has different roles for men and women, both in the home and in the church. And so maybe you fall into one of those categories, or maybe there's other reasons why you might think that this doesn't apply to you. So why should you care about elders? Well, the first and simplest answer is that God's word speaks on elders. Not just once like just in our passage for this morning, but it's all over the New Testament. Like over and over again, God's word speaks to the importance and the function and the role and the qualifications of elders. If God is going to give so much space in his written word to talk about something, well, we, his people, should care to know what he says. But second, uh, you should care about elders Because any Christian who is a member of a church is under the authority of the elders of that church. And so you, as a faithful church member, you should know what that entails. What exactly do elders do? In what ways are elders responsible for me? How do elders keep watch over my soul? How do they care for me? And on the flip side, how do I faithfully live out the New Testament command to obey your leaders and submit to them. And the importance of this point, I think, is highlighted by the fact that our passage is not a separate letter that Peter is writing only to the elders. No, this passage is incorporated within a letter written to the church. 
right? A letter written to an entire church body, uh, one that's going to be read aloud to all the believers. Peter includes in that a specific exhortation to elders, which implies that even though this passage is addressed specifically to elders, it's important for every Christian to hear and understand. And third, now I'm speaking specifically to the members of this church, the First Baptist Church in the city of New York, as we as a body think through the process of potentially appointing an elder in our church, we don't want to go about that process haphazardly. We want to think carefully about what the Bible says an elder is. If we were to appoint an elder, what does Peter teach that we ought to expect from him? How does 1 Peter 5 tell us that he is to fulfill his role? And what kind of man should he be? In addition to the explicit qualifications from 1 Timothy chapter 3, from Titus chapter 1, I preach an entire sermon on that, June 19th, 2022. So go back and listen to that if you need to brush up on that. But in addition to those explicitly listed qualifications, like what does 1 Peter 5 tell us about what kind of man an elder ought to be? And so this topic, this text, very directly applies to you. Plus, I trust that you always listen very carefully anytime that the Word of God is preached, regardless of the topic or the text. With that said, let's get right to our text. So I'm reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Follow along. Hear the Word of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now, one benefit of what we typically do here with sermons at our church, that is, uh, preach through entire books of the Bible, one benefit is that if you attend regularly, like on any given week, you have all the previous week's sermons as context and background to help you to frame this week's passage. But today, uh, we're kind of just jumping right into the letter of First Peter, right into chapter 5. So let me give you a little background here that I think was going to be helpful for us to understand our passage. Peter is writing, look at the very first verse of the book. Peter is writing, 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to Christians who are kind of scattered over the region of Asia Minor, uh, what would mostly be present-day Turkey. And one of the main themes of the letter is that of suffering. Peter talks about suffering unjustly. He talks about suffering for righteousness' sake. He talks about sharing in Christ's sufferings, right? the fiery trials that Christians endure simply because they are Christians. The suffering is all over this letter. But 
and this is the other key theme of the letter, for the believer, suffering is never the end of the story because suffering leads to glory. That was true of the Lord Jesus. And so Peter talks about in chapter 1 the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And what's true of Jesus is also true of his people who are united to him. And so 1 Peter 4.13 says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering leads to glory. That's not just a 1 Peter thing, right? That's all over the Bible. It's through many tribulations, that suffering, that we must enter the kingdom of God. That's glory. Light momentary affliction against suffering prepares for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's glory. Suffering's glory. And so it's in that context of a Christian life that at present may be full of suffering, but at the same time is confidently expectant of future glory. That that is the context in which Peter writes these words in chapter 5. And you see the connection to Uh, what's come before, what's come already in this letter through the very first word of our passage. Uh, So, uh, so I exhort the elders among you. Uh, Other translations, like the NASB translation, I think is a little more helpful here. It uses the word therefore. And so there's a slightly stronger connection, right, implied in therefore to what has come previously. Therefore, in light of the sufferings and trials and hardships that mark the Christian life that I've been talking about, Here's this exhortation for the elders of the church. Now, before we get to the exhortation itself, notice how Peter qualifies everything that he's about to say by first saying a few things about himself. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. That's an interesting self-description there by Peter. Because, well, compare it to the opening verse of the letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. He introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Making clear that what he writes in this letter is not just, hey, here's my opinion, here's some suggestions. Uh, This carries the weight of the authority of Jesus, right? This is apostolic doctrine that you've got in your hands here. But here in this exhortation, he appeals not to the fact that he's an apostle, no, he appeals to the fact that he is a fellow elder. He is serving his local church in that capacity, just like they are. As if to say, I know what you're going through. I know what you're dealing with because I am one of you. But it doesn't stop there. He also includes that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, those two phrases could be him describing his personal experience as one of Jesus' closest disciples, as one who walked with him for three whole years. And so being a witness of the sufferings of Christ, well, that would refer to the fact that Peter was physically present. He, He saw with his own eyes some of the sufferings of Christ. And being a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, that could be referring to him being physically present at the transfiguration when Jesus revealed a a small foretaste of his glory to Peter, James, and John. But they could also be understood to be Peter's own sufferings and his own expectation of glory. 
And so he's a witness, then, not so much in terms of seeing things with his own eyes, but a, a witness in the sense of being a partaker in suffering for the sake of Christ. Like he's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been arrested. He's almost been killed. What he calls in the previous chapter, sharing in Christ's sufferings. And then he's a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed, not in the sense that he's seen a preview of it in the transfiguration, but he is confidently expectant of the glory that's to come for all of God's children. I think that not only fits better with the theme that he's been hammering home for his readers in this letter, I think it also fits better with what he's trying to communicate to the elders here. Like, yes, being an elder is hard because life is full of suffering. Both your own suffering and the suffering of the sheep entrusted to you We're all witnesses of the sufferings of Christ in that sense. And I can relate to that as a fellow elder. I know exactly what that's like. But remember this. We're partakers in the glory that's going to be revealed. A point that he's going to come back to at the end. And so, brother elders, I exhort you. Which brings us now to the exhortation itself. It's in verses 2 to 3 in At first glance, it looks kind of complicated, right? It's a long sentence. There's like a million different things going on there. Lots of adverbs and lots of commas and lots of nots and buts and all that. We can simplify it greatly in our minds because grammatically, there is one main verb here, to shepherd. And so the main exhortation here is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Everything else in the sentence, you can think of as the details on how the elder is to shepherd. But the main exhortation, the main point, the main verb, the main responsibility of the elder is to shepherd. Now to shepherd, shepherding, by and large, we are city folks and it's kind of like threshing floors, right? Like what do we know about shepherding and sheep? Me personally, we had lamb chops for Christmas dinner, been to a bunch of petting zoos, and I play Settlers of Catan with my kids. Right? That's basically the extent of my shepherding sheep experience. I don't think I'm alone in this, uh, besides those of you who've just moved here from the outback. Right? Like most of us have no idea about anything shepherding or sheep related. But back then, like in Peter's day, These would have been concepts that everybody would have been immediately familiar with. Either you are a shepherd or you know a shepherd or just kind of like walking around, you just see sheep and shepherds everywhere. So what do we need to know to bridge that gap? That this biblical imagery might better get through to us. Well, apparently, uh, domesticated sheep are really quite helpless animals on their own. Uh, They are slow, they are clumsy, they're apparently not all that bright. Like without someone to lead them and guide them and protect them, uh, they are very vulnerable left to themselves. So that's where the shepherd comes in. Uh, His job is to care for the sheep. Part of that is making sure that they're well fed, uh, feeding them leading them to green pastures and to still waters where they can eat and drink. A part of that is guarding against predators and protecting them. 
You think back to what David said to Saul before he went and fought Goliath. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. So protecting them. And another part of that is making sure they don't wander off and get lost. Uh, Leading them. You think about the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, How the shepherd goes and he leaves the 99 behind in the open country to go find the one that's lost because that one that's lost is not going to have enough directional sense to come back home on its own. And so the shepherd has to go out and find it. And so the shepherd must feed and protect and lead his flock. Uh, Otherwise, they're rather helpless and hopeless. And so really, it becomes a perfect analogy for God and his people, the shepherd and the sheep, which is why this is such a common illustration in the scriptures. We, we are the helpless, vulnerable sheep. Kids are pretending to be animals, lions, cheetahs, and zebras, right? Everybody wants to be the mighty lion, Everybody wants to be the ferocious bear. Everybody wants to be the super fast cheetah or the majestic eagle. Like nobody wants to be the slow, clumsy, fat, weak, helpless sheep. But that's exactly how the scriptures describe us. When Jesus looked out on the people, Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd wander. They get lost. They go astray. And so Isaiah 53, 6 says of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. But if we are the weak and helpless sheep, well, God is the shepherd who feeds us and protects us and leads us. That's the imagery from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. It's the imagery of Isaiah 40. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And Ezekiel 34, 12. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then we get to the New Testament. With all that Old Testament imagery in our minds of God being the shepherd of his people, and Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. So don't miss that. That is a messianic claim. Jesus is declaring himself to be God, the shepherd of his people. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not only is Jesus the shepherd of God's people, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life so that his sheep might be saved. But remember, our passage in 1 Peter chapter 5 is not so much referring to God shepherding his flock, about Jesus, the Son of God, being the good shepherd. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5 is most directly referring to elders, ordinary human beings shepherding the flock of God that is among them. Now, it's still God's flock, 
It's still God's sheep. Look at how our text charges elders to shepherd the flock of God. After all, he is the one who obtained it with his own blood. But God, in his wisdom, as the ultimate shepherd of his people, he delegates some of that responsibility of shepherding to under-shepherds, to human leaders amongst his people who are charged with these tasks of feeding and protecting and leading his people. Peter knows that firsthand. Because you remember, he once received that very call personally from the risen Lord Jesus himself. You know the story from John 21. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well then, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Basically, do the work of a shepherd. But Peter is not alone in being given that task of shepherding. Because in every local church, God calls men to be elders, pastors, to shepherd his flock, to feed and protect and lead his flock. To feed his flock by the word of God, teaching and preaching the word of God, sermons and Bible studies and counseling and discipleship and directing the church by the word. All the spiritual nourishment that God's people need comes from the word of God. And so the task of the elder is to do exactly that, to preach the word in season and out of season. And the responsibility is also to protect the flock by holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Protecting God's people from false teachers, false doctrines, wolves in sheep clothing, and finally to lead his flock, to set the direction of the church as it seeks to follow God, our ultimate shepherd. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. That's the main exhortation, to shepherd The rest of the sentence is basically just more details on how pastors, elders, are to shepherd the flock. Let's look at verse 2 again. Elders are to shepherd the flock of God by exercising oversight. And then he tells us what that means by listing three ways in which elders are to shepherd the flock of God by exercising oversight. He gives us three pairs of don't do this, but do that. Don't shepherd under compulsion, but do shepherd willingly. Don't shepherd for shameful gain, but do shepherd eagerly. Don't shepherd by domineering, but do shepherd by being examples. Let's think about those one at a time. First, shepherds are not to shepherd under compulsion, but to shepherd willingly. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, Not under compulsion, but willingly. Uh, Not under compulsion. Uh, Now, that is not talking about what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when he says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Like this divinely wrought, irresistible urge to preach the gospel for the glory of God. Now, that's a good and godly compulsion. This is talking about a 
self-centered compulsion. And that compulsion can manifest itself in the process of becoming an elder, like where you become an elder because you're being pressured to do it by others or you're feeling like you have to do it in order to please people or, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I guess I got to step up. Becoming a shepherd under compulsion. But it can also manifest itself while serving as an elder. Where you begin to think of your responsibility to shepherd the flock of God as this unpleasant duty. Something you just have to put up with and tolerate because it's what you're supposed to do. It's what you're expected to do. This temptation that's sometimes very subtle to begin thinking of all that shepherding entails the sometimes very difficult work of caring for God's sheep as drudgery. But shepherds are not to shepherd under compulsion, but rather to shepherd willingly, voluntarily, joyfully, knowing that this is God's flock. These are God's sheep we're talking about here. And to serve them, to love them, is to serve and love God. And knowing that one of the clearest ways in which we love God is by serving his people. Just think about what Jesus asked Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, if you love me, then go feed my sheep. Now, that's how your love for me is going to express itself. So first, shepherds are not to shepherd under compulsion, but to shepherd willingly in love for Jesus himself. Second, shepherds are not to shepherd for shameful gain, but to shepherd eagerly. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The first thing that we think about when we read this is, is probably money. And that's fitting because the scripture speaks so extensively about those who sadly and tragically make ministry all about financial gain. False teachers who, Second Peter chapter 2, they have hearts trained in greed. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. And they bring shame to the gospel. And that's why in the qualification of elders, we're told that an elder must not be a lover of money, must not be greedy for gain. But thinking even more broadly than that, thinking beyond just money, shameful gain is more generally speaking about making ministry about what you can get out of it. Whether that be money or prestige or respect or status, And so you turn shepherding from a way to serve God and his people into a way to serve yourself. That's the wicked shepherd portrayed in Ezekiel chapter 34. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Like instead of feeding and serving the flock, you're just feeding and serving yourself. That's the hired hand that Jesus talks about in John 10. The one who cares nothing for the sheep. The one who cares only about himself. The true shepherds of God's people, they can't be characterized by that kind of self-centeredness. Rather, they are to shepherd eagerly. 
eagerly, not for money, not for gain, not for finances, not for any other kind of self-centered, shameful gain, but seeing the labor as reward in itself. Seeing the privilege of serving the Lord and his people, like that itself is gain. So second, shepherds shouldn't shepherd for shameful gain, but eagerly. Third, shepherds are not to shepherd by domineering, but by being examples. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering. Uh, Many other translations will say, not lording it over those in your charge. And this language that I think most of us are familiar with, certainly language that Peter would have been familiar with, because those are Jesus' words. Remember what he once told the disciples in Mark chapter 10? Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Lording it over those in your charge. That's the kind of thing unbelievers do. They abuse their power and they throw their weight around and use authority to get their way. And unfortunately, this kind of mentality can creep into the church and even into the pastorate. We've got pastors who just love power and intimidate and dominate and manipulate the flock. But in contrast, Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and following, it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so elders, shepherds, they are not to shepherd God's flock like an unbeliever might, using authority to domineer over the people, lord it over the people. Elders are to shepherd God's flock like Jesus does, serving, loving, even giving his life as a ransom for many. Elders are to shepherd God's flock, look again at the contrast in verse 3, by being examples to the flock. It's this idea that the, the shepherd, the elder, the pastor, he is not above the rest of the congregation, though he has been tasked by God with this special calling to shepherd and oversee. But first and foremost, he is one of the sheep himself. Now look at how Peter draws repeated attention to that in this passage. Verse 1, Peter doesn't just say, I exhort the elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you, among the body. And then in verse 2, it's not just shepherd the flock of God. It's shepherd the flock of God among you. He twice reminds elders that, well, they're one of the sheep too. They're one of the flock. One of the helpless sheep for whom the good shepherd died. So the most important thing about an elder is not that he's a shepherd himself. It's that he is a sheep under the care of the good shepherd. To put it another way, the most fundamentally important thing in a pastor's life is not that he ministers the gospel. 
It's that he himself has been saved by that gospel. One practical implication of that is that there should not be this artificial separation between pastors and the people, right? between the clergy and the laity. No, the elder is to live out his life in front of the congregation that he might be an example in all things. And what Peter is telling elders to do here is exactly what Paul tells Elder Timothy to do. 1 Timothy 4.12 Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And elders are not perfect men. Far from it. If you need a reminder, I'm right here. But elders should be the kind of men, as the qualifications from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 show, the kind of men that others in the body can look to and see their example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. The third, shepherds shouldn't shepherd by domineering, but by being examples. So elders are to shepherd the flock of God by exercising oversight, doing so not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not by domineering, but by being examples. Sounds great. Sounds wonderful. But nobody said it was going to be easy. Shepherding might sound glorious and exciting, but what happens when the sheep don't listen? And they bring harm to themselves or to the other sheep. What happens when wolves creep in to the midst of the pen? What happens when the sheep even, Galatians 5.15, bite and devour one another? And Peter knows that this stuff happens in churches. These kinds of things happen among God's flock, like from firsthand experience. He knows that as a fellow elder. He knows that. And so he finishes the exhortation by reminding his fellow elders, yes, it's hard, but remember the glory to come. And hopefully now you see the connection, right? You see how this passage fits in with the barter letter. The letter is written to the church, and he reminds them over and over about suffering in the Christian life, but press on because there's glory to come. And now he addresses the elders of the church, whose role in shepherding is particularly important in times of trial and suffering in the life of the church. And he reminds them that, yes, serving as an elder is hard. Shepherding is hard work. Being an elder is also full of challenges and trials. But press on. Press on because there is glory to come. The kind of glory that makes any current trial seem like the light momentary affliction that it is. Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown of glory, the the picture there is of a a crown of leaves, the kind of thing they would have given out for winning an athletic competition back then. But you know how it is. The shiny trophy that you got loses its luster pretty quickly, and it's not long before it's relegated to the top shelf of your closet. No matter how nice your crown of leaves looks right now, it's going to fade away. It's going to fall apart. 
Like no matter how carefully you try to preserve it, one day it's going to become someone's trash. But this, this crown of eternal glory, well, this is a wreath that will never fall apart. A well done, good and faithful servant. That's a crown that is never going to fade. But notice that Peter doesn't just say, and when Jesus appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He specifically calls him here the chief shepherd. That's obviously intentional, given everything that he's just said. Peter reminds shepherds everywhere that Jesus is the chief shepherd. Reminding the shepherds that even as they love the sheep faithfully, uh, there is a shepherd who loves the sheep infinitely more than they do. A greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life. And what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Reminding the shepherds that even as they serve the sheep faithfully, there is a shepherd who has served the same sheep in an infinitely greater way than they ever could. Peter wrote about it, even in the same letter, back in chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see that? First Peter chapter 5. Elders must shepherd and oversee. But first, 1 Peter chapter 2, elders must remember that Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of their souls. He is the one who has secured for them that unfading crown of glory. Friends, that is the only hope for every single person in this room, like elder or not. That Jesus, the good shepherd, has laid down his life for sinners like me and like you. That Jesus took upon himself all of the sins of all who would believe so that we might, in exchange, receive his perfect spotless record. That because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of what Jesus did in rising from the dead, those of us who believe might be forgiven of our sin, might have secured eternal life, an imperishable wreath. Maybe you came here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you've been wondering, like, like what benefit is all this talk about shepherding for me? Well, friend, it would be of eternal benefit for you if you would come to trust in the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Find salvation in Christ and Christ alone. That's our text. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Let me leave you, dear church, with just one quick point of application. You have no excuses. You forget this point of application. There's only one, and it's one word. 
It's to pray. And to pray fervently and diligently and consistently with regards to elders. I'm asking you to please pray for me. Now, your elder, your pastor, that I would faithfully shepherd the flock of God. That I would never do so out of compulsion or for shameful gain or domineering over those in my charge, but that I would exercise oversight willingly and eagerly and by being an example. Pray that God would raise up elders in our church body. It is good to have a plurality of elders. And pray that God would guide our church through this current season. As you know, in our next congregational meeting, I am going to put forward Nathan's name as a potential elder candidate. I think he's qualified. I think he's already doing the work of an elder in many ways. In short, I think he would make a great elder, but like ultimately, it's not about what I think. It's about the will of the Lord being done. Because this passage reminds us that he is the chief shepherd. He is, Hebrews 13, the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus loves his sheep, like this flock, this church, more than I or any other elder of this church ever could. So, dear saints, my fellow sheep, I am asking you to pray with me, not that what I desire would be done, but that God's will, as the ultimate shepherd of his sheep, that God's will for his flock would be done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Father, we have no other hope for salvation except that Christ died for our sins. So Father, if we get nothing else out of this message, we pray that uh, we would be uh, joyful and hopeful and expectant because of what the good shepherd has done on our behalf. And Father, practically, we pray that you would guide our church in this season as we think through this topic, that your will might be done, that your name might be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.